We gather tonight at a dramatic and deeply promising time in our history and in the history of man on earth. For the past 12 months, the world has known changes of almost biblical proportions. I'm not sure we've absorbed the full impact, the full import of what happened. But communism died this year. But the biggest thing that has happened in the world in my life, in our lives, is this. By the grace of God, America won the Cold War. That, of course, was U.S. President George H.W. Bush marking the end of the Cold War in his State of the Union speech back on January 28, 1992. It was a heady moment when anything and everything seemed possible, but it would not last. Fast forward 30 years to President Joe Biden's State of the Union speech on March 1st of this year, a week after Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine. Six days ago, Russia's Vladimir Putin sought to shake the very foundations of the free world, thinking he could make it bend to his menacing ways. But he badly miscalculated. He thought he could roll into Ukraine and the world would roll over. Instead, he met with a wall of strength he never anticipated or imagined. He met the Ukrainian people. He thought the West and NATO wouldn't respond. He thought he could divide us at home in this chamber, in this nation. He thought he could divide us in Europe as well. But Putin was wrong. We are ready. We are united, and that's what we did. We stayed united. Two speeches, three decades apart, are like bookends of an era. One marked the end of one Cold War, and the second heralded the start of another. So what do we learn in the interlude between those Cold Wars? What are the lessons we can draw as the West enters what appears to be another protracted period of confrontation with the Kremlin? That's what we'll be discussing today, so stick around. Hello from my makeshift home studio in Washington, D.C.'s Funky Adams Morgan neighborhood, and welcome to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UK McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. Joining me from Washington, D.C.'s historic Capitol Hill neighborhood is Jeff Mankoff, a distinguished research fellow at the National Defense University's Institute for National Strategic Studies and author of the recently published book, Empires of Eurasia, How Imperial Legacies Shape International Security. Welcome back to The Vertical, Jeff. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on. So, Jeff, the idea for this program actually grew partially out of a conversation you and I recently had off mic about the lessons of the past 30 years from 1992 to today. And I'm also currently doing some research on this topic that I hope to turn into a book. So I have a lot of thoughts on this as well. But to get the ball rolling, what are your top line lessons from that 30-year period after the Cold War? Mm -hmm. Well, I think that we faced a problem with a very high degree of difficulty uh, when the Cold War ended. And it should be clear that the end of the Cold War and the collapse of the Soviet Union are separate phenomena, right? So I think when we were thinking about creating a post-Cold War world, at least initially, that was one in which the Soviet Union still existed. Um, a more democratic, more collaborative Soviet Union under somebody like Mikhail Gorbachev, perhaps, but a Soviet Union nonetheless. Um, you refer to the period between 89 and 91. Yeah, give or take. Yeah. 
And I think that once the Soviet Union was gone, uh, it created a much more complex uh, strategic and, and political environment. Uh, because now, instead of just dealing, uh, you know, with one power center in Moscow, you had all of these newly independent states um, with varying degrees of uh, state capacity and, and experience uh, conducting themselves in the international arena um, and varying degrees of, of concern uh, about the relationship with Russia. Uh, Russia remained deeply uh, engaged in the internal politics of a lot of these states, uh, including in the the frozen conflicts that broke out in some of them. Uh, Moldova, or, well, the conflicts weren't frozen at the time; they froze later on. Um, Moldova, uh, Georgia, and then in a, a more complicated way in in the South Caucasus between Armenia and Azerbaijan. Uh, and so now you had uh, this much more violent, tumultuous uh, environment. You also had uh, a leadership in Moscow that uh, perceived itself as having lost status uh, in addition to having lost territory as a result of the Soviet collapse. And so any effort to construct a stable post-Cold War order uh, in which Russia was going to be a, a constructive participant, had to deal with these realities. And that was very, very complicated. Um, and I think that in the ensuing couple of decades, there have been some hits and some misses. Uh, but for a variety of reasons, we failed in that attempt to build a, a secure and stable post-Cold War order, uh, certainly in Europe. Uh, and now we're sort of seeing the end of, of that process play out, uh, and we're in the midst of a very violent and dangerous war um, that I think is going to have profound implications for what the future of that order looks like, but implications that, at least at this point, it's it's rather hard to foresee. Yeah, I want to drill down at something you you kind of alluded to there, that the the, the period after the Soviet breakup did present a strategic challenge, and this kind of challenges a myth that Moscow and its supporters have put out there that the U.S. somehow conspired to break up the Soviet Union, which is, I mean, patently absurd. I mean, all the evidence suggests that the U.S. Mm -hmm. did not uh, it, it want the, the USSR to break up. Um, witness mm -hmm. President George H.W. Bush's yeah. speech to the, to the Ukrainian parliament the infamous Chicken Kiev speech um, just months before uh, Ukraine did, in fact, declare independence, but imploring with the Ukrainians not to declare independence. There, there's, a, there's a lot of selective memory on this, but you, you spoke of this complex security environment, and there were some hits and some misses. What do you think some of the hits and misses were? Well, I think um, the U.S. and uh, its European allies did a pretty good job uh, of managing the German problem, uh, which, if you remember at the time uh, that the Cold War ended, was seen as being in some ways perhaps the most intractable mm -hmm. uh, European security problem. Um, John Mearsheimer has been in the news recently for, for some of the wrong reasons. But um, if if you remember the the book that he wrote in the in the early 1990s about the tragedy of great power politics, you know he predicted that Germany was a, a revived Germany was going to uh, seek to reassert itself as a major uh, player that it was going to be a threat to the European equilibrium, um, and that having you know maybe solved the Russian problem with the end of the the Cold War, now the West was going to face the German problem and the Japanese problem. 
Well, that hasn't aged well. That, yes, that, <laughs> that has not aged well. But in part, I think that's because we did a pretty good job on, on that mm. issue. Um, German reunification went off. Uh, the US and West Germany were able to get Soviet buy-in for that process. Um, and it wasn't a one-to-one -one merger. It was effectively the old East Germany joining the old West Germany uh, on the terms of the West German basic law uh, and joining NATO. So I think that was uh, a success. Um, I think the at least the initial uh, process of, of NATO expansion uh, was done in a, a way that sought to uh, both uh, provide incentives for carrying out uh, domestic reforms within the, the targeted states, so places like uh, the Czech Republic, Poland, Hungary, um, but that also sought to manage the, the tensions with Moscow that inevitably, uh, and as were warned at the time, uh, ensued. Uh, I think the, the, the NATO issue became more fraught later on, um, but at least in the in the late mid to late 1990s into the early 2000s, um, I think was handled reasonably well. And I think the the ability of, of the West and, and of NATO collectively to manage the dual track, uh, which is to say providing security for uh, the former Warsaw Pact states while also offering reassurances to Russia. Um, you know, it, it worked about as well as as could be expected. I want to drill into two of these things now because you talked about the German problem, which is actually one of the things I wanted to talk about. And this, and then related to that, the, the subsequent enlargement of NATO, um, there's a lot of mythology around two of these things right now. Mm -hmm. um, and there's a lot of false assumptions out there. The first was on the German question. And I want to drill down into what I call the promise that wasn't. Mm -hmm. um, the promise that wasn't. There's, uh, there, there's a, a belief out there, widespread, um, and not just in Russia. It's, it's as many in the West kind of buy into this. I see this topping up in op-eds and books all the time. The, the, the West allegedly made a promise to Moscow not to enlarge NATO when Germany was reunited. And the thing that everybody zeroes in on is this comment that then Secretary of State Jim Baker mm -hmm. allegedly made to Edward Shepard Nazi or Gorbachev, mm -hmm. I forget which, uh, not Nazi. one inch, not one inch to the east. Right? Mm -hmm. But what not what what not one inch to the east was referring to, um, in my understanding, is that there were Soviet troops in East Germany, there were NATO troops in West Germany, and there was not going to be any NATO hardware moved east while Soviet troops were still in East Germany. This was mm -hmm. not a discussion about broader NATO enlargement. And if you really think it through, a promise is impossible because a promise, unless it was a treaty. Right. right? Um, you can't you can't bind what future U.S. presidents are going to do, nor can a U.S. president unilaterally make a decision for the entire alliance. So what are what are your thoughts on the, the this this alleged promise and the mythology mm -hmm. that's built up around it? Yeah, it, uh, I think it's, it's it's obviously a very complicated question. And I think um, there is some mythology that's been built up around it. But I also think that the reality is, in fact, complicated. So as, as you pointed out, um, the conversation that always gets pointed to was was between Baker and Shevardnadze, uh, who was the Soviet foreign minister. Remember, right. not the Russian foreign minister, the Soviet foreign minister. Soviet foreign minister. In 1990. Um, so this was when the Soviet Union still existed. Um, and whatever that promise entailed or that statement, whatever it entailed, the fundamental 
facts on the ground changed quite substantially by December 1991 when the Soviet Union was no longer there. So even if the intention had been that we're going to maintain um, the presence of NATO forces where they are in mid-1990, um, now with the Soviet Union gone and the security vacuum in Central and Eastern Europe, that's a very different landscape. And as you said, there was no legal formal commitment uh, on the part of NATO to do or not do anything. Right. Uh, so I, Nor I don't could Baker make one on, the, on behalf of NATO. Well, I mean, given that NATO can't do anything without the assent of the United States, I mean, he de facto well, yeah. could. But I, I don't think that that was, I don't think that that was the intention. Now, there has been a lot of scholarship uh, in the last few years uh, by people like Mark Trachtenberg, uh, Mary Cerati, Joshua Schifrinson, uh, quite a number of, of very good scholars in the U.S. Um, who pointed out some of the ambiguities uh, around this question of what was and wasn't promised. Um, and at various times, uh, Western, particularly U.S. diplomats, did come close to say things like, you know, we have no intention of doing this. Uh, this isn't on the agenda. Uh, we should focus on other things. Again, none of this was ever codified, uh, right. but the tenor of the conversations certainly seemed to hint in that direction. And so I think it's understandable that Russian leaders assumed uh, and perhaps assumed on, on less than solid uh, evidence that um, this was going to be the, the case. Now, the other big uh, question here, you get to 1997, which is when the, the first round of NATO expansion really takes off. And uh, that's when the, the NATO-Russia Founding Act gets signed. Right. And the Founding Act, which was an agreement between NATO on the one hand and Russia on the other, basically ratifies in, in legally binding form um, what had been promised on the political level back when the Soviet Union was still around uh, with the signing of the um, the Charter of Paris in 1990, which is that states have the right to choose for themselves their own international alignment and you know, the right. security, which security organizations they choose to be members of. Um, so Russia signs off on that um, mm -hmm. in 1997. Now, the Russian argument is, well, okay, so we signed off on that in 1997 in connection with the first round of NATO expansion. So okay, Poland, Hungary, the Czech Republic, that's one thing. And if, in fact, if you look um, at the draft treaties that, that the Russian state released uh, late last year before uh, the start of the current war in Ukraine, they talk about going back to the lines of 1997. Uh, and I think that's why. Uh, it's because there's a recognition that in signing the Founding Act, uh, mm. Russia basically assented to that round uh, of NATO expansion. Now, the Founding Act doesn't specifically limit itself to Poland, Hungary, and the Czech Republic. Mm -hmm. It talks about the wider principle. Uh, but I think the Russians felt and continue to feel that uh, NATO's further expansion was a strategic loss for them uh, and that they didn't receive any compensation for it. And so they've gone back to these um, supposed promises and, and allegations of bad faith uh, as a way of saying we were weak and you took advantage of us. Right. Well, the fact of the matter actually was the Clinton administration did not, was not enthusiastic initially 
about enlarging mm-hmm. NATO, and Clinton almost had to be dragged into it. Um, and yeah. my understanding, it was he got cornered by Lech Valencia and Václav Havel, um, who, who who effectively talked him into it. Is what I what I have heard. Um, yeah, well, and so and a lot- some of his domestic policy advisors were pushing it as well, yeah. because they were worried about the 1996 election and. There are significant uh, Eastern and Central European diaspora yeah. communities in states like Wisconsin that right. uh, were considered in play. And so there was a, a clear domestic benefit to this as well. Yeah. And when the decision was finally made, I mean, I I was, I was at the Helsinki summit with, with, with Yeltsin and Clinton. And I mean, I thought the United States was incredibly magnanimous in this. I mean, they didn't they didn't have to bring Russia in. Clinton could have just done that first round of enlargement, the, you know, the, the, the same way subsequent uh, rounds were done. But they, they, they bent over backwards to get Russian buy in. At that mm-hmm. point, and I, um, I, I'm, I'm wondering if actually there was any benefit to that. I mean, I, at the time, I thought it was the right thing to do, um, but I have to wonder if there's any benefit to that. I think there's, well, there was long the assumption that Russia was on a path to some kind of integration with yeah. the Euro-Atlantic world. Uh, that was kind of where we got uh, shortly after the Cold War ended. Um, there was this brief moment, and I think this is still when the Soviet Union was around, where there was this talk of building a pan-European security architecture on an equal basis. Um, Mary Sarati talks about this in her book, 1989. Um, and the OSCE was in some ways designed to embody that vision, and the OSCE never lived up to the ambitions that were right. uh, assigned to it at that time, but it exists. Um, but, you know, once that failed, once you couldn't, once it became clear you weren't going to build this kind of overarching equal security architecture, basically what you were left with is you had yeah. these Western institutions, yeah, NATO and then the EU, which is formally founded in 1992. Um, and the expectation then is that these post-communist countries, including Russia itself, are in some ways going to line themselves up. But even if it didn't, there were these efforts at kind of anchoring it to uh, both NATO and the EU. Uh, with NATO, there was the Partnership for Peace, which Russia mm-hmm. actually signs on to in 1994. Uh, with the EU, when uh, the European neighborhood policy is rolled out, uh, there's an effort to pitch that to Russia, which Russia rejects. Um, and so instead, the EU develops what are called the common spaces, the four common spaces between the EU and Russia, where they're going to, you know, work together, collaborate uh, on the basis of uh, what the former Russian foreign minister, Igor Ivanov, talked about as everything but institutions, uh, that we're going to integrate with everything but institutions. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was a vision that lasted into the 21st century. Yeah. Uh, but for a variety of reasons, a lot of them having to do with Russia's own kind of political degeneration, that didn't pan out. Uh, And so now we're kind of in a place where, you know, like I said, I think we're kind of at the end of an era and the transition to another era. And what really marks that transition is the failure of this idea that Russia is going to become part of this wider Euro-Atlantic world. What it's going to become, I don't know, Uh, but it's, it's not at least unless it dramatically transforms itself, going to become part of that world. Yeah, no, I think that's that that's highly doubtful. And I'm I'm skeptical that that could 
ever happen, unfortunately. I, mean, I did want to dive into one thing here, too, and it kind of plays off a lot about what you were saying, is that, I mean, there's a belief, again, Russia apologists, apologists for the Putin Putin's action, will argue that we created this situation by taking advantage of Russia in the aftermath of the Cold War. All of these myths about promises and, and whatnot that we were just talking about. How much do you think that Russia's path was determined by our actions, or was it going to be going along that path anyway. For example, yeah. even if there wasn't a NATO enlargement, wouldn't Russia probably still have reverted to its, its default position of imperialism, I guess is mm -hmm. the way, without being overly uh, deterministic um, and essentialist yeah. here? Well, so this debate in a lot of ways parallels the debate that uh, historians and, and commentators were having about Germany. Uh, in the aftermath of the Second World War, and that debate lasted for a couple of decades. Right. Um, and there's this notion uh, among German historians of, of a so-called Zonderweg, uh, a special path, that you know, Germany was kind of predetermined by its late unification, by uh, the nature of its political system, the dominance of you know Bismarck's coalition of uh, iron and rye, that it was going to be authoritarian, that it was going to be aggressive, that it was going to turn against its neighbors, and that, you know, the the Treaty of Versailles, which all of the uh, German revanchists of the 30s pointed to as being responsible for their humiliation and then sort of underpinning the um, their renewed aggression in World War II, um, that none of that really would have mattered, that it was really the internal construction of the German state that drove its aggressive behavior. I think we have a similar debate uh, with Russia today. Was there a Russian Zonderweg? Um, or, you know, is Russia's uh, aggressive behavior uh, the result of you know, policy failures inside Russia or in terms of the way that the West dealt with Russia at the end of the Cold War? I don't know that there's a definitive answer to that because any answer that you give is going to be hypothetical. And I think right. any big historical outcome has, you know, multiple causative factors right. behind it. Um, you mentioned at the beginning my book on on empires and imperial legacies, and certainly that's as long as Russia has this kind of imperial constitution. Uh, I think the idea that it's going to be a nice Pacific vegetarian state that lives comfortably within its own borders uh, is is not very likely. Um, on the other hand, uh, you know, the same is true of, of other uh, post-imperial states that I talk about in, in my book, um, but Russia is more uh, revisionist and, and aggressive than, you know, Turkey or maybe even China. Uh, so what is it that's different about about the Russian case? And I think you can point to a number of different things. You know, the imperial collapse was more recent. Um, Putin is a very different kind of leader than, say, Ataturk, or the the Russian uh, or the Soviet military state security system wasn't fully dismantled. Also, I mean, I think the international environment matters. You know, had that ambition of anchoring Russia to a more consensual security architecture succeeded, uh, this might be a very different conversation. Uh, we can debate why that didn't succeed, but I think the fact that it didn't succeed is, is important. Yeah, and I mean, 
I tend to fall on the side of this that that Russia was going to revert to form, um, and that I I don't see the enlargement of NATO as having uh, I can't say it hasn't contributed to it at all, but I think it was something it was a process that was already in play, which kind of gets into a couple of things I want to note about things we got wrong, basically things we definitely got wrong. And the first is this: I think we willfully ignored um, Russia's still present imperial tendencies. Um, the interventions in Georgia were happening mm-hmm. in this period of the 90s when Russia was supposedly on this democratic mm-hmm. path. The intervention mm-hmm. in Abkhazia and South Ossetia, arming both sides in Georgia's civil war, arming extremist groups in eastern Ukraine and in the Crimea, in Crimea, which is mm-hmm. which has been documented. There were efforts to stir up trouble in the Baltic states. Uh, I remember yeah. being in Estonia in the summer of 93 when they were going to block the rail, the, the, the rail lines because Narva, their, their Narva was kind of yeah. whipped into declaring independence from Estonia. <laughs> which is mm-hmm. funny now, but we there were all of these signs that <clears throat> these imperial tendencies were there. Yeah. Second thing we didn't see, or we didn't, or we chose not to see, was that the the security challenge that kleptocracy uh, presented. Mm-hmm. Um, there's the yeah. famous CIA report that, uh, about about uh, corruption in the Russian government, where. Uh, then Vice President Al Gore scribbled bullshit um, in yeah. the margins on this, okay. um, famously. Um, there was the, 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 and this is something that was later going to turn into a very, very serious security challenge, not unrelated to the imperialism, because the yeah. kleptocratic networks were often used uh, to mm-hmm. advance imperial aims. And then finally, I thought we had we we. we Place too much faith in markets. The the Washington mm-hmm. consensus mm-hmm. and this assumption that markets were going to solve everything, that capital was politically yep. neutral, that was a flawed assumption that we I, mm-hmm. I think I hope we would learn to learn from going forward. Any any thoughts on any of those pieces? Yeah, yeah, uh, a lot actually. Um, on the first one, I think you're right that the understanding that Russia continued to have this imperial DNA was perhaps downplayed. Um, at the same time, uh, it's worth keeping in mind that a lot of the core states of the West, NATO and, and the EU, are also former empires. If you look at what the Belgians were up to in uh, places like Congo in the 1960s, um, it looks at least as bad as what the Russians were up to in, in the post-Soviet space in, in the 1990s. Um, now, I think part of the difference is that you know, there was no interest in the EU or NATO in uh, bringing Congo into the fold, let's say. Uh, so we could deplore, uh, you know, the, the assassination of, of Patrice Lumumba, let's say. Um, but because that was seen as a kind of a far off colonial uh, affair that didn't undermine our view of a, a worthy liberal democratic uh, state and a, and a full member of the EU. I think with Russia, it was different because the targets for its post-colonial interventions uh, were much closer to Europe. They were European states and Central Asian states. Um, And those states themselves had ambitions to become part of the European family and Western institutions. So Russian intervention in the Baltic states or in Georgia uh, was viewed as being much more problematic say, than Belgian intervention in the Congo. Um, Although on, we didn't pay a lot of attention to it. We didn't do much well, to counter it. Yeah, at the time, that's right. 
but I think it became more problematic later on uh, in a way that, you know, the Belgian or the, or the French intervention in Africa did not. And, you know, I, I don't think we should give the Belgians or the French a pass for, for the terrible things they did in Africa. Uh, on this question of, of kleptocracy and uh, the, the political valence of capital, I think you're absolutely right. Um, you know, one of the things we were talking about in our sort of offline conversation uh, was the timing of when yeah. the Cold War ended, yep. right? It, it ended at kind of the high point of the Reaganite, Thatcherite, yep. uh, neoliberal consensus. And I think in a lot of minds, those two things got mm -hmm. conflated, that we won the Cold War, you know, in, in air quotes, won the Cold War uh, because of, you know, the Reagan, Thatcher commitment to free markets, which are inherently superior to other uh, alternatives, uh, because, you know, there's this deeply uh, felt uh, commitment to freedom and markets that exists everywhere. Um, and that the the secret sauce for you know insurance and, and security in this region is to ensure the expansion of this kind of neoliberal market driven vision. Um, and what's happened, and you know people like Ann Applebaum have written about this more recently, is the flow of influence has often gone in the other direction. Um, yeah. that, you know, these kind of open neoliberal uh, economic systems are themselves vulnerable to penetration by dark money, by uh, corruption, oligarchs, you know, people who are willing to game the system uh, for their own ends. And of course, in the Russian context, a lot of these people are not operating as free agents, but they're in fact, uh, you know, working Adjunct on behalf of the their state. state. <laughs> No, and all of these things taken together makes leaves me with a, a bit of concern that just like at the end of the Cold War, we thought that the problem was communism. Right. Communism false, problem mm -hmm. solved, when in reality the problem was something else. Uh, the pro Communism yeah. was a manifestation of a bunch of other problems, the imperial tendency, these kleptocratic mm -hmm. natures in the, Rus in, in, in the right. Russian state, and, and so on. Our faith in markets to overcome this was misplaced. Mm -hmm. I fear that going forward, we're going to make the same mistake in if and when Putin – well, Putin will fall eventually or will leave, mm -hmm. leave power eventually – that we're going to make the same mistake and think, all right, Putin's gone. Everything's great now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, I, I think that's right. Um, you know, some of these structures um, have much deeper historical roots. I mean, you know, there are people like Richard Pipes who've written mm -hmm. about the kind of patrimonial legacy and how it goes back to, you know, Muscovy effectively. Mm -hmm. um, and you can still see elements of that today, right? Like um, the the Siloviki in Putin's Russia, or the, the new nobility, right? Like right. the the boyars in the, in the modern system, and they operate in this kind of neo-patrimonial way where access to power brings them uh, wealth. Um, and they're going to be very reluctant to, to give that up. And that's going to continue, that has continued in one form or another throughout most of Russian history. And that's going to continue to be the case regardless of whether Putin is sitting in the Kremlin or not. History is not destiny necessarily. Right. Uh, again, if you want to make the comparison with Germany, right, Germany today, the Federal Republic, looks very different from the kind of, you know, quasi-feudal state that existed, well, at least up until like 1933. Uh, but it took a world war, occupation, mm -hmm. the complete 
disestablishment of, of the state in order to, to transform it along those lines. And I don't think anything comparable uh, is really in store for Russia. Yeah, yeah, no, and this this leads to like you know this leads to my skepticism going forward, because if that is the case, the next time around, because there will be a next time around, right? This cycle will probably I don't know how long this protracted period of confrontation with Russia is going to last, but I assume at some point you're going to see political. If history is any guide, you're going to mm -hmm. see some form of political change come in Russia in a liberal direction, um, but. Are we going to, I mean, do we still have to protect ourselves in that situation? Um, I mean, how should we proceed going forward? Should we assume the worst, I guess? And that's where this leads me to the, the, the skepticism. I'm known for being hawkish on this. I always wasn't hawkish, but I'm known mm -hmm. for being hawkish on this. But now when I look at this, I'm like, you know, I think we got to basically expect and prepare for the worst Regardless, going forward, I, 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 lest we go through the same cycle again. What, what do you have any thoughts on mm -hmm. that? Well, so I think there's a Russia piece to this, and then there's a us piece, if you will. Mm. Um, and I think on the Russia piece, yeah, it's probably worth being uh, skeptical that things are going to change in a, a really fundamental way. We don't know how the war in Ukraine is going to end. I think Russia is going to come out of the war uh, one way or another, much weaker. Uh, that period of time may not be uh, internal, but you know, for the next several years, next decade, um, the military losses, the financial losses, um, the outflow of capital and talent uh, that Russia is suffering as a result of this war, I think are going to have significant, significant effects. Um, that it's going to be difficult, given the nature of the political system as it exists today, to make good on. Uh, so we're going to have a Russia that I imagine is going to be a lot weaker, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to be um, more reconciled to this reduced status. Uh, and that holds a lot of danger, um, especially because the bases of the system that we've been talking about are liable to still be there. The, you know, the corruption, the imperial DNA, the um, sort of hostility to uh, the U.S.-led international system and, and to kind of Western political models. At the same time, here, I'd like to be a little bit more optimistic um, in the sense that uh, Russia has been able to take advantage of the perception uh, that the post-Cold War world was relatively benign. Uh, to entrench uh, malign influence of various sorts in Western and non-Western uh, societies. Uh, last few years have seen um, enhanced uh, awareness of this problem and, and greater vigilance about it. It doesn't mean that we've uh, been successful in rooting it out. Uh, I think we have uh, been better um, at identifying it and with the sanctions that, that we're now seeing in the context of the war, um, actively trying to, to push back against it. Um, but that's not going to be uh, solved quickly. Um, there are certainly uh, political elements in all uh, Western states that uh, benefit from uh, mm -hmm. this kind of corrupt uh, linkage and would like to see it continue for their own reasons. Um, there's an economic cost uh, to rooting it out, and I think that's been a problem in places like the UK, yeah. uh, where there's so much of this Russian money in, in the real estate sector and 
frankly, in politics. Um, so it's it's there's an opportunity, um, I think, to make progress on this front, but it's going to require political decisions and political will, and that mm -hmm. may or may not be in evidence. Yeah, no, I think this is, I mean, going forward, I, this administration has done so much on this front more than any before it. And I, I certainly hope this is a, a template for the future because this is a problem that's not going to go away. I mean, finally, before we shift into the second uh, section, I did want to make, because uh, talk a little bit about the agency of small states. I mean, this mm -hmm. this this whole situation, this post Cold War situation, was looked at as if the United States and Russia were the only actors, right? As if mm -hmm. the Czechs, Poles, Hungarians, Latvians, Lithuanians, Estonians, Bulgarians didn't have agents, Romanians didn't have agency of right. their own. Um, they right. wanted to join NATO for a reason. They were mm -hmm. the ones that were really driving this, not mm -hmm. the U.S. or NATO. Um, and in yeah. a lot of ways, the NATO and the U.S. were passive actors in this being dragged into this mm -hmm. by these smaller states and recognizing the agency of these smaller states, I think, was the right thing to do, um, mm -hmm. rather than being seen as this unnecessarily provocative move against Russia. It was no saying, no, the, the Czechs and the, and the Slovaks and the Poles and the Hungarians and the Baltic states and, and Romania, Bulgaria, they, they have agency. They have agency. And then we should mm -hmm. recognize that. Yeah, I think that's right. NATO and the European Union, NATO more than the European Union, is a military alliance. So whether or not to grant membership in that alliance to another state is ultimately the decision of the states comprising that alliance. And they make that decision on the basis of a set of calculations. But I think most importantly, uh, whether extending membership to another member enhances or reduces the ability of that alliance to provide security uh, or to provide security for the for the current members. Um, so, you know, it's it's not like a club where you fill out your application and if you meet the criteria, you get to join. Um, that's part of it. In theory, you're supposed to meet a bunch of criteria. Um, but at the end of the day, it's the responsibility of the members uh, to decide whether it makes sense from the perspective of their own national interests to allow these new members in or not. Right. Uh, so I, you know, I, I think the idea of door where countries have the right to pursue membership aspirations is fine, uh, is good in fact. Um, but at the end of the day, whether those countries are going to be admitted is only in part about what they do. Uh, it's also going to be in part about how the rest of NATO perceives right. whether or not their membership is, is actually in their own interests or not. And that depends on... Right among other things, what they perceive Russia's reactions. Right. Although I'd say that the, the whole process begins with the agency of these prospective mm -hmm. member states saying, we want to yeah. join. Um, yeah. And, and, that and that the is, security environment, sorry, just, yeah, has a lot to do with that. The security environment in that moment seemed relatively benign, and there wasn't a lot of concern that, oh, you know, Russia's going to launch an invasion of Poland if Poland becomes a member of NATO. Now, there were concerns, and, you know, people like... Um, George Kennan, Henry Kissinger, um, lots of others uh, time uh, against NATO expansion. There was this open letter that they submitted yep. to, I think it was Les Aspen or, or to Clinton, you know, basically saying that this would be a huge mistake. And these were not, you know, peaceniks or, you right. know, Birkenstock wearing academics. These were former secretaries of state. Yeah, no, there was there was a debate at this time, but again, I think all of that 
kind of supports my point that there, there was no we weren't chomping at the bit to enlarge NATO. The yeah. way this has been presented yeah. is we were like NATO is expanding like an empire, ta- you know, taking in yeah. all these unwitting countries, which is which is yeah. absurd. There was a there was a real you remember there was a real debate here in the U.S. about this. Yeah. Yeah. On that note, it's a good way to segue. A few moments, we'll shift gears and continue our discussion, looking at the case of WNBA star Brittany Griner and the Russian tactic of taking American citizens hostage. I'd like to remind you, you are listening to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UT McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from Washington, D.C.'s historic Capitol Hill neighborhood is Jeff Mankoff, a distinguished research fellow at the National Defense University's Institute for National Strategic Studies and author of the recently published book, Empires of Eurasia, How Imperial Legacies Shape International Security. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Vertical Podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. If you do, please leave us a big fat five-star rating and review, as that helps our visibility. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. You can follow us on the Twitter at Power Vertical. Кадры, которые мы получили только что, Владимир Путин. Нас никто не слушал. Привет. Это Навальный. Я уже делаю свою работу. А сотрудники безопасности гоним вас. С новым веком. So at the time of this recording, WNBA star Brittany Griner is still in Russian custody after being sentenced to nine and a half years in prison. Reportedly, the United States and Russia are negotiating to exchange Griner and possibly retired U.S. Marine Paul Whelan for the notorious arms trafficker Victor Boot, who is serving a 25-year sentence in U.S. federal prison. But Griner and Whelan are not the only Americans in Russian custody. There's also Mark Fogel six-year-old teacher who was arrested in August 2021 with medical marijuana vape cartridges in his luggage. And there's David Barnes, 64-year-old, who was arrested in January after a contentious custody dispute with his formal, former Russian wife. The Barnes case is positively bizarre. Uh, he, 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 he and his former Russian wife had a child in, in, in the U.S. The Russian wife uh, left with the child went to Russia uh, after he had been granted custody by authorities in Texas. Um, he went to Russia to try to work this out, and they arrested him. Um, they arrested him because she charged him with child with, 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 uh, with, with, with child abuse, uh, allegations that were looked at by Texas authorities and dismissed. Now, this allegedly took place in the, on, the, on the territory of the United States, not Russia. It's an absolutely bizarre case, um, one that doesn't, hasn't gotten nearly the attention of, of, of Greiner uh, or Whelan or even Fogel. Um, now, on one hand, I want to see these Americans released, um, but I worry about the asymmetry of the exchanges. Um, we're talking about Victor Boot, an international arms trafficker known as the Merchant of Death, um, the, the, the person who was changed, tra- traded for Trevor Reed, uh, the last American who was released, was a cocaine trafficker. So we're exchanging actual criminals for, for these Americans who were basically snatched in Russia. Um, I also worry about the precedent this may set which could encourage future Russian hostage-taking. Jeff, what are your thoughts on this? I haven't done a show on this yet, um, and I, I felt mm-hmm. it was time I, I touched on it, because it is, other than the Ukraine war, is the other, the other big issue in Russian-American relations that are yeah. in the war. What, what, are you, what are your thoughts on these, this hostage situation? Do you see this, the, the Russian state as intentionally taking American hostages for this purpose? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so I, I think that's 
more or less what's going on in at least cases. Um, it's been clear for a long time that the Russians uh, want Victor Boot back very badly uh, and uh, have tried uh, pressing through diplomatic channels uh, for his release. Uh, that having not worked, uh, and now with uh, you know the relationship between the two countries uh, about as bad as it's ever been, um, it seems like uh, there's a decision that was taken somewhere in the Kremlin that uh, this is one of the few forms of leverage uh, that they have, which is to effectively start taking hostages. What are your thoughts? Do you think we should, is it right for us to engage in these exchanges right now? I mean, it's, it's, I'm really torn on this. Mm -hmm. I'm really yeah, torn on this. Yes, I, I am too. I, I don't know that I have a sort of coherent view on this, on the various cases and um, how they you know, sort of relate to, to the release of somebody like Boot or, or uh, Konstantin Yoroshenko, who you also uh, yeah. referenced. You know, somebody like Brittany Griner, she's charged with transporting uh, vape cartridges uh, with THC in them into Russia. She said she didn't know how they got in her luggage. You know, perhaps they were planted. Um, perhaps not. We don't know. Um, if that, in fact, was something she did, then, I mean, it is illegal. Right. Um, is it deserving of a nine and a half year sentence in prison? No. no. <laughs> um, have we sentenced people to terms like that for drug offenses in the past? Yes. Um, so this is this is kind of complicated. Then you talk about somebody like Paul Whelan. Um, this gets even murkier. Yes. Because right, he's a, a former Marine who has a background um, doing a, a lot of things that are not visible in public. Uh, and so it's a little bit unclear, you know, what may have taken him to Russia in this case uh, to begin with. Uh, so, you know, whether or not he's being held on the basis of, of something he actually did or is uh, someone who falls into this uh, same kind of hostage situation, I think is a little bit uh, unclear right now. Right. And he was reportedly there for a wedding when he was arrested. You know, in some of these other cases, it, it, like the, the one that you mentioned with the, the child abuse allegations, like there's really zero basis yeah. uh, for holding uh, this David person. David Barnes, yeah. It's, you know, it, it, it's, there's there's that nuance. The other thing I would say is that, you know, it, it's clear Victor Boot is a bad guy. And um, it's clear that he's also, despite, you know, being a, a sort of freelance arms trafficker, is uh, deeply connected to the Russian state. Yeah. Um, that his activities uh, abroad have uh, the imprimatur of at least elements of the Russian state, which is in part why they want it back. So that, you know, sort of complicates things as well. Also, he's been in prison for, what, nine years, yeah. give or take? Yeah. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, one could at least make the argument that, you know, he's a bad guy, he got caught, he served time, and... If we release him now, that's, you know, it would be better if he served longer in prison, but it's not like he's getting off scot-free. Um, imperatives here. Uh, you know, you want Americans, especially those who are unjustly uh, held, to be released and sent home. At the same time, you don't want to encourage this practice uh, of taking hostages, which when you start negotiating uh, over their fate, effectively incentivizes the other side to keep taking them. 
Um, and you want to make sure that uh, people like Victor Boot are treated with the uh, severity that their activities uh, deserve. Yeah, and you, the, the question you have to, I mean, it's a rhetorical question for me, but the question I always kind of throw out there when I, when I, when I do interviews on this topic is like, why do Russia want, why does Russia want all these criminals back, right? Why do they want an arms trafficker back? Why do they want a cocaine trafficker back? Why, the, the, yeah. And the other name that's come up in these exchanges, of course, is, is, is Vladislav Klushin. Um, who was um, on, tri on trial, I think he, he recently pleaded not guilty in a Boston court over alleged, an alleged $82 million insider trading scam. He's also connected to the highest levels of the yeah. Russian government. And there's also the guy whose name escapes me right now, who's in jail in Germany um, right. over the assassination yes. of um, Zilmkan Khangashvili, who was yep. a, a Chechen exile in Berlin. Yeah. Um, and again, right, like clearly committed a crime, committed murder, right. uh, in fact, right. on German soil. Um, right. In presumably with the park. imprimatur. Yeah, it's, presumably with the imprimatur of the Russian state. Um, but, you know, nevertheless, they want him back. Right. Yeah, these, I mean, these, I mean, my question was rhetorical because they basically, they're, you know, the very close relationship between crime and the state is, is very, very well documented, but it just, yeah. you know, it's, it's a question that's worth highlighting. Like, you know, that, that, you know, we want an, a WNBA star, a teacher and a retired Marine back. They want a, an arms trafficker, a cocaine trafficker, an insider trader <laughs> and an assassin. Back. You know, yeah. So what is the, what right. is that? What does that tell us but to, to wrap it up, Jeff? I mean, we both lived in Russia. Um, mm -hmm. Did you ever think in this environment now, I mean, do you think back to your time in Russia and say, God, I, maybe I dodged a bullet because it was pretty much <laughs> open. You know, I would I would be I would recommend any Americans to get out right now because you're a target. Yeah. Um, I mean, I never personally felt uh, a sense of threat when I was there. Um, I'm sure they knew what I was doing at all times, mm -hmm. um, but I never felt a personal sense of threat. I certainly would not go back now. Um, right. I don't think either my government or theirs would allow me to go back right now. Right. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I think um, under most circumstances, given the state of the relationship right now, as, as an American uh, going to Russia or spending time in Russia, you're, you're putting yourself at risk. Yeah, and I honestly, I, I should have looked it up before I, I I started this program, but I, I'm not sure how many Americans remain in Russia at this time. And mm -hmm. there, there, there were a lot of us back in my day and back in your day. Um, I'm not sure there are many in those that are there who don't have the benefit of diplomatic passports and probably right. get out of Dodge, I would I would, I would yeah. argue. Well, the, the, the State Department has advised them to leave. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. That's about all they can do, I guess. Right. Right. That's all we have time for today. I'd like to remind you, you have been listening to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UT McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from Washington, D.C.'s historic Capitol Hill neighborhood has been Jeff Mankoff, a distinguished research fellow at the National Defense University's Institute for National Strategic Studies and author of the recently published book, Empires of Eurasia, How Imperial Legacies Shape International Securities. The views Jeff expresses on this program are his own and do not reflect those of the United States government. Jeff, thanks for an enlightening discussion. Sure. Thanks again for having me. And I'd also like to thank our awesome production team in Arlington, Texas. Lance Vegas is in the virtual control room. He keeps all the lights on and all the complicated machines well-oiled and in working order throughout our discussion. And Dylan Holberg handles our all-important post-production duties, cleaning up my many messes and making us all 
sound a lot better than we do in real life. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Vertical Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. If you do, please leave us a big fat five-star rating and review, as that helps our visibility. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org, and you can follow us on the Twitter at Power Vertical. Join us again next week, and until then, I leave you with the ambient sound mix that's prepared by our production team. Thank you.